Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. On this podcast, we talk with experts about applied psychophysiology, biofeedback, neurofeedback, and all things brain-related. These are conversations to educate, raise questions, have some fun, and help us all lead healthier, happier lives. Today's guides are Mitchell and Angelica Sater, who head Sater Psychological and Sports Center, a major center for providing neurofeedback and QEG services and training. The Saters have been training neurofeedback providers since 1999 and have worked with thousands of patients over the years. In 2020, they were presented with the Joel F. Lubar Award by the International Society for Neuroregulation and Research for making significant contributions to the field of neurotherapy. As sponsors of NRBS, they are presenting a free webinar on February 28th entitled The HBI Database, Going Beyond the QEEG. I talked with them about using EEG data to tell us about brain activity, starting with what the HBI database is and why they use it. Mitch and Angelica, uh, I want to welcome you to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Thanks, all. Happy to be here. So, so Sadar Psychological is going to be giving a, a webinar. The two of you are giving a webinar. Uh, you're a sponsor of NRBS, and you'll be talking about the HBI database. So, so first, for those who don't know, what is the HBI database? You want to answer? No, no, no. You want me to answer? Okay. Yes, I do. <laughs> Well, it's it's a database that keeps getting added to, for one thing. So it's a, a database that measures um, EEG, and from the EEG, it determines um, both age and gender differentiation on many parameters. Um, so the typical parameters that we think of related to an EEG, QEEG analysis. Um, so we get the spectral displays. Uh, we get coherence measures, we get a theta-beta ratio, but then it also includes um, um, uh, calculations of evoked potentials that are derived while you're engaged in a task. So it's collecting your EEG data while you're engaged in a task, and then it measures how the brain processes um, in various domains. So, so this is a database that's used uh, I suppose most frequently when we're uh, collecting data for QEEG, the quantitative uh, EEG, uh, or brain map, as as it's so often called. And so, when uh, when we collect that EEG data, what happens to it? How does the database come into play? Once you collect the data, you can do a number of things. You can look at, of course, the raw data where the eyes open, eyes closed, and while you're doing the task. But you can also have it analyzed through a process that they call the brainwave analyzer. Um, so you submit the data into the brainwave analyzer, and then it creates numerous calculations relevant to those that you, as a clinician, selected. So we, we use, as clinicians, we would use the database to calculate different parameters for our clients. And those parameters are based on comparing our client to the people in the database. So, so who is in the database? They use a normative database um, that ranges from age seven through six now. 
Okay. Six now. So it's six now through 65. Just a small correction. The HBI database goes to age 79. And again, as I said, gender differentiated. Uh, the people that were selected to be admitted into the database are those that don't have defined psychiatric diagnoses. They don't have medical conditions. They're not taking medication. Uh, they even did blood work to make sure that their health circumstances met a certain criteria. And then the patient's data is compared to a range of age. So as you get older, you get compared with older people. Um, and as I said, gender differentiated as well. So we can get all these parameters from the database by comparing our clients to the people in, in the database who don't have any medical, don't have any neurological, no psychiatric issues. So it's sort of like comparing the brains of our clients to an average, a quote, average brain. Is that is that right? Exactly. And you'd said that this is a normative database. What's the difference? There are a few normative databases, but there are also a few clinical databases. What, what's the difference between the two? Well, I think, I think uh, people hold the a normative as the, the gold standard because it costs a lot of money to do all of the evaluations and assessments to make sure that, that you are getting an average or a normal, whatever that is, um, database. Whereas the clinical database is when somebody, and we actually did this 20 years ago or so, when, when you get the data from the people or, or the clients that you are seeing in, in your clinic or in a pool of clinics and there isn't any evaluation to uh, separate out anybody. You just you just pull all the data that you have collected in a clinical practice and then that becomes your comparison. So it's it's just it, it's a different it's a different pool. So there isn't, isn't defined criteria right. for being a part of the database. Yeah. And how does how does this analysis, how does the database help us understand brain functioning for our clients? So I think I think your your key phrase there is help us understand. It's one part of understanding the client. And we look at the client's experience. We look at their history. Uh, we look at what things concern the client. So there will be deviations from your analysis when compared with the database. And I think it's really important that the deviations align with your concerns. 
So for instance, if one of your deviations is that you have um, intense uh, visual processing, that could be really good. If you're an architect, it could be really good if you're a baseball player, a professional athlete. Uh, there could be lots of reasons why it's really good. So a deviation doesn't necessarily mean a problem. What we're looking is to use the database to help us understand what the concerns of the client are. So the, the deviations from that average brain uh, might and hopefully would line up with the complaints, the, the, the symptoms and things like that. And so it provides an, another I don't know, perspective or angle on the bigger picture. And how have you found that, that doing this sort of analysis and, and integrating it into the bigger story, how, how have you found that that helps clients really understand what's going on? Well, Saul, in, in many ways, I mean, some of the ways that really jump at, jump out at you is, you know, when you're reviewing the results with a client and, and the, the analysis generates a report with with data but also pictures of a person's head and where 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 the, the deviations are and, and people seeing this before them can have a very profound effect they can it just helps helps to validate their experience. And, you know, for a lot of people, they've either been told or they think that they're a little crazy or it's all in, you know, it's all in their head in a, not at a literal sense. And seeing this, that, that there are objective reasons that they can now point to for what what they're dealing with can have a very profound effect upon the patient. I find that most people know what's going on in their brains. They know what the dysregulations are. They know what the problems are. They, they may have even done other testing, such as neuropsych testing, and they can even tell you where in the brain things are localized. But what they can't tell you is, what is the inefficiency at that local area that the brain is doing? Or how? what is the inefficiency where one part of the brain isn't talking well to another part of the brain? Uh, so they know what's going on. They just can't tell you the detail of how the brain is making that happen. So they may know, for example, that the frontal lobe isn't functioning well, so that's why they can't focus, but they may not know that there's excess theta up, up there or something exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah. And having that piece of information is pretty important um, for numbers of reasons. If you're taking medication, it can help guide what medication, if you're somebody that's inclined to want to use that. If you're somebody who has anxiety that can be uh, affected by a dysregulation in the parietal lobe, the back of your head, but you've been diagnosed as somebody with ADHD because the anxiety causes you not to pay attention, 
Um, so having that detail and that information can really help guide treatment. And that's what we're all about. We want to get people to feel better. And in order to do that, we got to get them to the right kind of interventions. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the use of the these. Um, you'd mentioned a few things that, that um, medication choices, uh, but primarily, I think these are used at least by us for uh, train uh, for designing neurofeedback training. Uh, how how does that happen? How do we use the QEEG data uh, or the data that we the parameters we calculate from from something like the HBI database? How do we use that to plan the neurofeedback training? Well, first of all, let me say different people use it different ways. And so we'll be, we'll be talking about our way. And, and certainly we look at what are the results of the QEEG ERP analyses, and then we look at which of those results correlates with the person's concerns or their symptoms. And typically, there is a correlation. And so then that directs the initial protocol or protocols. But so so it kind of gives you, you know, gives you direction about where to begin begin the training. But then, frankly, Saul, once that training actually begins, it becomes more the patient's reaction that begins to guide protocol changes. And and then also, um, you know, you may begin to work on a couple of of agreed upon symptoms and as those ameliorate you then look at what's left and and you can look at look at the residual symptoms against those those results and that again can give you direction about what what protocol to begin with with any of the residual symptoms. But again, for us, once the training actually begins, the most important part becomes the patient's reaction to the training itself. So it's a good start place. It shows you where there are deviations in frequency or power uh, or deviations, whether that's in the the, the, the EEG itself, uh, the, the just the EEG or, or the um, evoke potentials, the processing parts. And you can start the training based on that, you know, hopefully within conjunction with their, their problems, the, the primary complaints, and then kind of modify the training based on their response to it, it basically their report as, as the time goes on. Yeah. And and I think so. One one of the most important things for me is getting a feeling for the EEG, however you do it, can help to avoid some early 
adverse reactions. I mean, some of the obvious ones are these, or is this. You know, you can look at a person, you can get a feeling for them, you can do your your intake, and you you just get get the sense that they are all over aroused. And so you can then begin to, if you wouldn't get a look at their EEG, you would begin to train them to, to reduce their arousal level. But if you were to look at their EEG, what you might find is, is they actually have excess low or slow frequency amplitude seeing in the frontal lobes. And since the frontal lobes are not then working appropriately, they are not managing things. And so, so though the person appears over-aroused in behavior, but the actual brain function is under-aroused. And if you were to begin training them for under arousal or for over arousal, I'm sorry. The odds are they will have an adverse reaction. Now, the people that don't get a look at the EEG first will then see that and, and they'll change and, and then eventually it'll work out. But by getting a look at that initially, you can help to avoid some of those early adverse reactions. So that's the strength of, of using the database of doing the QEEG. For me, that's one of the main uh, things. Yes. We'll go back to the satyrs in a minute. In the meantime, if you want to hear from more experts in biofeedback, neurofeedback, and applied psychophysiology, be sure to sign up for webinars at nrbs.org. Throughout the year, there are free talks, an inexpensive continuing education series, and a conference in the fall. Better yet, become a member. You'll get discounts for webinars and events, a monthly newsletter, and access to exclusive member gatherings. Go over to the website and join up. Now, let's return to my conversation with Angelica and Mitch. A lot of clients come to us and they just feel like they're, maybe they're incompetent. Maybe they haven't learned how to manage life. Maybe they're crazy. Maybe they have this diagnosis. You know, they just make attributions of themselves that are negative. And if you can show this, this is not you failing at life. This is you succeeding in spite of the dysregulations in your brain. But we can just like, you know, we can fix a broken leg. We can help uh, the brain to work more efficiently. Yeah, I do find that the um, going through the reports, the QEEG reports, are are very validating uh, for from clients. And I usually start them by saying there shouldn't be any surprises here because it's your brain. You 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 know it, and there rarely are surprises, which is is a good thing. Uh, but then there they often you know very frequently people will just say I this is the first time they've felt understood. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or yeah. Like that. And that's, you know, that's a really powerful intervention on its own. And, and you know where I do see surprises because I do a lot of work with children. 
So I have parents that are very well-intended. They're good parents. They've brought their kids to lots of different interventions. And when I can say to the parents, you know, your child's, like Mitch was saying, okay, the, the slower frequencies in the frontal lobe are four standard deviations from the database and you think your child is just not behaving, that's not true. They are working hard to make this happen. So that doesn't absolve them from the responsibilities of life, but let's understand what's going on and, and let's bring structure into the house. Okay, let's put charts up. Let's do all kinds of things based on the understanding that they're not able to do this executive function on their own. So let's bring it to them. And for a while, the parent may need to be the child's executive function till we're able to help regulate that better. Mitch, you would sort of alluded to um, the, the fact that not everybody uses QEEGs. Not everybody starts with a brain map or comparing it to a normative database. Is that, of course, it's legitimate, but I'm just curious about what your both of your thoughts are about that because there's arguments back and forth even in the literature about uh the the value of qeegs and that they don't always lead to better outcomes than than a, a more clinical or or educated guess maybe too weak a word but other approaches to to the training yeah so i mean i i view the neurofeedback field kind of analogous to to uh, the psychotherapy field. You know, different people, different providers in psychotherapy are drawn to different psychotherapies, whether it's the old Freudian, which isn't around a lot anymore, but, but it's psychodynamic or behavioral or CBT or diet, you know, there, there's a million. But but what you're looking for is which approach kind of fits you. And there are people doing neurofeedback who just aren't real at ease with data and with numbers and they just don't that they they don't feel good and they don't get a lot from that, even if if one tries to make it as as uh, clear as possible, and so for them to to do that, they would begin to feel unconfident, and then that would come across to the patient, and so it's not had a good thing. So I cannot say that everybody should do QEEGs. I, I mean, we, in the course that we teach, we we teach a mid-line assessment looking at CZ, FZ, PZ. It's a relatively simple thing, but it at least gives a person uh, a look at the EEG, and, and it isn't as complex as a cue or looking at the ERPs. And, and so there are people who feel, feel good about that. 
my own belief is whatever can help the neurotherapist feel confident so that those non-specific therapeutic factors get get accentuated that's that's really really what it's to do so while we like the QEEG and we like the ERP we are not zealots about it and say this is this is it no i mean it is for us and i think if you're not using a QEEG or even if you're using you know, some type of measurement and, and you're not making progress, then it's incumbent upon you to look at, well, what should the next step be? Um, so it's perfectly reasonable to be a practitioner that starts without that. And if you're not making progress, then looking at what's getting in the way here, it might be something that you're just not going to determine without the QEEG or without looking at the EEG. There might be spike activity. There might be activity of, um, oh, you know, there might be low um, low amplitude. And maybe we, we need to look at nutritional things in order to boost that. So it's a balance of looking at all the tools that we have available to us and using them at the time that's right for the clinician that's working with the patient. So, and I should say, you know, when we began in this field 25 years ago or so, we were not doing cues on the people. That just, it just was not a practical thing. So we would, we would do our arousal assessment and then our intake and we would, we would begin to train. But then if 10, 12 sessions in, things were not going as we we thought they should, we would find a way to, to, to help a person to, to get a cue. Now we do cues and ERPs on just about everybody coming in our clinic, and as we talked about earlier, that gives us initial direction. But if eight, 10 sessions in, we aren't getting what we think we should, then we may rely even more on just the arousal assessment or what we, we know about research that that says about this is this particular issue that we're dealing with and and we will we will begin to deviate from what the QEEG says because it isn't you know it's not always right I mean it isn't the brain's very very complicated and we're looking at just this window or a couple windows so you need to be flexible. Absolutely. And it's, it, it provides so much information. It's, I think that the clinical demand is, is how to use that information. And well said. I guess it's an executive function is to know when to shift from, <laughs> from one to another. 
<laughs> you mentioned uh, ERPs a few times, um, event-related potentials. Could you talk a little bit about what those are and how they differ from the more spontaneous EEG that we collect? So the ERPs are derived from measurements that are taken while you're doing a task. So the EEG is measured and you're taking a task that is repeated, in our case, with the HBI database, 400 trials. And to describe it pretty briefly, you're looking at a picture that flashes on the screen, followed by another picture and 400 pairs of pictures. And the instructions are very simple. It's a simple task. Five, six, seven-year-olds can do the task. We're not looking to trick anybody. What we're looking to do is collect information about how their brain processes while they're doing the task. So they're given very simple instructions. If there's a picture of an animal followed by a picture of an animal, click the button. Um, along the way, there are also um, sounds that occur at certain intervals during the task, and there's minor variations in the sounds. And we're looking at, first of all, visual processing is the first thing that happens when you're looking at something. So do the eyes, send the information to the brain, and what does the brain do with that visual information? Then similarly, what does it do with the auditory information? Can it detect when there are differences in the auditory information? And then we look further along at how does the brain respond um, in terms of detail, paying attention to the, you know, this is an animal, is that an animal, paying attention to the emotional response, and then executive function, looking at, should I click? Should I not click? How did I do? And also there are other potentials that are measured. There's something called a Bereitschaft's potential, which is how engaged is the person when they're doing the task? How engaged is the brain? So we look at all of that, again, compared to the database. So how do you, how does your brain receive the sensory input? And, and that can be very informative. Um, we see with some people that they're very sensitive to the auditory processing. And these are going to be the people that when you see that, you're like, hmm, it looks like your brain processes that pretty intensely. Are you somebody who doesn't like to be in malls, in restaurants, in places where there's a lot of people? And they're like, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, same thing, visual processing. So we can bring that into looking with them at how in your life might this, you know, manifest itself. Okay. So the... Uh, so the ERPs are telling us about how they process that information and often that fits nicely with the story that they're they're coming in to tell us. Very much so. How is that integrated into treatment planning or, or uh, neurofeedback training? You know, this is another way to look at the, the brain functioning. And, and if, first of all, I should... I should clarify, the HBI Med database gives us two general types of results 
regarding the ERPs. There are the so-called simple ERPs where you look at, you know, the negative, the N1, and the positive, the P1, and then the N2. We, I mean, we aren't getting into that here, but, but, but then what what the HBI Med database does that is not available to my knowledge anywhere else is it breaks things down into components using independent component in analysis. So there is a visual component and there's an auditory component and there's a left association and a right association and a left memory and a right. So, so it, it, when you look at those then, so if there is an issue, for example, with the visual component, that's going to implicate the occipital lobes. If, if if there is an issue with the left hemisphere association uh, component, that's that is going to be the temporal area. So so it's another way to kind of get a feeling for where the brain might not be operating at, at an optimal level. So it 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 gives us potential direction again for for our our protocols okay so as we're sort of wrapping up at least this part of it what would you say to clients who are interested in neurofeedback and are considering whether to have a qeeg done or not i mean it's it's a chunk of time it, it's an extra cost what would you say to them to convince them that it's worthwhile? I think people are very good at knowing what they need. Uh, so I, I don't feel like it's my job to do any convincing. Uh, it, it's my job to help them understand, as you say, what, what might I tell them? Um, and I think if, again, if, if they've been through multiple treatments, medications, therapies. We see lots of people that have been through inpatient hospitalizations, um, a variety of things. If it if they feel it would be helpful to have a better understanding of how the brain is making the behavior that they're challenged with happen, then I think they should, you know, consider that the functional EEG could be helpful for them. Um, we also work with a lot of families that have adopted children and the history is sorely lacking in understanding, you know, what this child has experienced prior to they became a part of the family. Uh, so I find, you know, that those parents tend to really want what information they can get to get a better understanding of the child. Um I think if somebody's had a concussion, if they've had head injuries, things like that, it's pretty important to consider, do you want to get a better understanding of what's going on before we begin the neurofeedback? Yeah, just to, to go along with 
with what Ann said. People come to us. Some people know what we do, and they come and they want it. And, you know, that, that simplifies things. Other people come and they they know vaguely what we do, but not quite sure. And so I, I will, before I begin to ask them about what's going on with them, I'll say, let me tell you what it is we do here. And, and I say, you know, we put a cap on your head and we get these things and we send them off to a neurologist and we do a QEEG, and this is what a QEEG is, and then we look at the ERPs about the processing. Is that anything that you think you want? And if they say yes, then we proceed. Most people say yeah, they say yeah, that's all. but there are some that say no, that's a little more than I'm really looking for, and then I say okay, you know, be aware of it and in the future and, you know, nice meeting you and we'll see you later. But but like Ann says, it's not about telling a person you should do this or you should. It's letting them know and they seem then to figure out whether it's anything that they want at that, at that point or not. Well, this has been a great conversation so far. Uh, we're going to take a break now, but when we come back, I think we'll try to dig a little bit more into the, I guess, the wonkier sides of things. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guides today to the Healthy Brain and Happy Body were Angelica and Mitch Sadar psychologists, and longtime neurofeedback providers and teachers. They're helping us to go even further in our understanding of brain health by using EEG information to tell us how our brains process sensory information and complete complex tasks. You can hear more from them at the NRBS free webinar on February 28th or from the recording. Go to the NRBS website or follow the links in the show notes. While you're at it, subscribe to this podcast. You can click the subscribe here link in the show notes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, get in touch. We really want to hear from you. Be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. This podcast is supported by the sponsors of NRBS, including Sater Psychological and Sports Center, and the International Society for Neuroregulation and Research. Be sure to join us in our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.